everyone and welcome to another episode of what the forensics my name is nicole and like always i am joined by the lovely rebecca and journey this week journey will be telling us all about the case of the oklahoma city bombings and then we will have the pleasure of hearing rebecca educate us on the topic of domestic terrorism and how you know the bombings and this topic um coincide and play a role together um, for this episode, I would also like to note that there is a listener's discretion advised as there are detailed descriptions of mass death. And on that high note, um, Journey, would you like to delve into the city bombings and tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, of course. All right. So the Oklahoma City bombing is kind of interesting. I'm going to go through like what the bombing was and then go into who the bomber was and then how they solved it and then have just have a little bit of extra information at the end. So on April 19th, 1995, at 9.02 a.m., a bomb exploded in front of the Alfred P. Mira uh, Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City. Moments after the bomb went off, the area looked like it was a war zone. Only two-thirds of the building was left. The third that was destroyed had been turned completely to rubble. Dozens of cars were burned, and more than 300 nearby buildings had been damaged and or destroyed. So it was a giant explosion. Uh, this attack rocked the city, not only because of the devastating impacts of the explosion, but also because of the bombing of the World Trade Center in 1993, just two years earlier. I didn't know that there was another or like an earlier attack on the World Trade Center, um, like prior to 9-11. I didn't either. Yeah. So that was really interesting to learn because I thought it was a mess up in the article. And when I was reading it, I was like, what the heck? That's super weird. Um, so the World Trade Center bombing was the work of Middle Eastern terrorists. So this 1995 bombing was immediately attributed to the Middle East as well. Just some friendly neighborhood racial profiling over here. So something that is very interesting to me is that they, de- they identified the terrorists in the 1993 attack the exact same way that they identified the terrorists in this 1995 attack. And so, in both cases, investigators found the axle of a truck in the rubble that had the VIN number on it, and they were able to trace it back to the rental agency or the renter to get the man of the get the name of the man who rented the truck. In both, like separate bombings, two years apart, I was shocked. Is that like a common thing that happens? Like, was this axle? part of the bomb or was this axle sorry i missed that part part of the yeah, rubble so the the vehicle was the bomb like they filled right. the vehicle with um okay. explosives in both cases i guess and so yeah. then when it exploded they were able to find the axle like the rear axle of this truck or van and find hmm. the vin number on it and then like solve the case like so fast which is weird wow yeah, so that was a bit suspicious because I was like switching between the two sites and I couldn't tell which one I was on when I was reading the section of how they solved these cases because mm-hmm. of how similar they were, which was really, really weird. So 
I kind of went down a little conspiracy loophole with that. (laughs) (laughs) So um, the VIN number, like I said, was traced back to a body shop in Junction City, Kansas. And the employees were able to give a description of the man who had rented the vehicle in the 1995 bombing. Um, a composite sketch was drawn and shown around town and at local hotels, and they were eventually able to get the name Timothy McVeigh. Why they didn't just have the name of the guy who rented the van, like, on hand, I don't know. But that's besides the point. So, Timothy McVeigh was born August 23rd, 1968 in Pendleton, New York. He was the second of three children and has expressed an interest in guns from a very early age. His grandfather introduced him to guns, which inspired him to want to be a gun shop owner, and he would even bring a gun to school to show the other boys, just as, like, show and tell, which is a giant red flag. Yeah, I would take that as a massive red flag, Did the schools do anything with that? Not that I was able to find. Okay. So, yeah, take that as you will. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um, He never, like, shot anyone or never had any, like, malicious intent with it, but he would just bring them to be like, oh, look at how cool this gun is, but it's still a massive issue that he was bringing weapons to a school. And so his parents divorced when he was 10, and he lived with his father uh, from then on. And by the time McVeigh was 14, he had begun stockpiling food and camping equipment so that he was prepared um, if a nuclear attack uh, ever occurred or the government became communist. He graduated high school in June 1986 and then started a two-year computer program at a local college, but he didn't end up finishing it. He then worked a series of odd jobs for the next couple years. And his paranoia of the government grew during this time, and he became increasingly concerned with the Second Amendment after reading The Turner Diaries, which is written by William Pierce. And so this book is an anti-government neo-Nazi tale of genocide against racial minorities that is set in a near-future America. And it also includes details about the truck bombing of the headquarters of the FBI in Washington, D.C. I don't remember what year... That took place, but it kind of gave him the idea for his attack in 1995. And in 1988, McVeigh enlisted in the Army, and he was a model soldier and was promoted to sergeant before 1990. So within two years, he was promoted to sergeant. He also earned a Bronze Star for bravery in the Persian Gulf War. He then tried out for Special Forces, but dropped out of the program after two days. His experience with the Special Forces and this um, tryout experience really changed his opinion of the military. And so he took an early discharge and left the Army in December 1991. So him, sorry, this is a little off topic, but also Mm -hmm. on topic from last episode. So (laughs) McVeigh and Snowden would have been just a few years apart in the Special Forces training. And also, I guess they got very different messages out of the Army, because whereas Snowden wanted to keep helping but couldn't, yeah, <laughs> McVeigh seems very opposite. <laughs> that's so cool. I didn't even put that together. Okay, that's really cool. So after he was honorably discharged from the Army, he then returned to upstate New York following that and was unable to find steady work. 
He experienced very serious bouts of depression and began sharing increasingly angry views of U.S. foreign policy, gun control, and conspiracies within the United Nations. He had reunited with two of his army buddies, Terry Nichols and Michael Fortier. I apologize if I pronounced his last name wrong. Um, and they also shared his conservative and paranoid political views. And then in March 1992... He wrote a letter to the Lockport Union Sun saying, quote, America is in decline. Do we have to shed blood to reform the current system? End quote. Which makes sense. I feel like that statement still applies. Um, I don't know what was in between those two statements that kind of held a little bit more paranoid and conservative view. But apparently he also wrote many letters to different newspapers and media outlets along this, like expressing the same kind of views. And so the Ruby Ridge shootout happened in August 1992. And this had McVeigh thinking more seriously about taking violent action against the government. This was kind of his catalyst. And then in 1993, McVeigh traveled to Waco to observe the ongoing siege of the Branch Davidian compound. And then during the siege, he distributed like pro-gun rights literature and sold bumper stickers. I don't know what the bumper stickers say. I was trying to figure out what kind of bumper sticker you would sell there, but I uh, I couldn't. (laughs) But um, unsurprisingly, he viewed what was happening at Waco as illegal, and he even told a reporter Quote, the government is afraid of the guns people have because they have to have control of the people at all times. Once you take away the guns, you can do anything to the people. The government is continually growing bigger and more powerful, and the people need to prepare to defend themselves against government control. End quote. This is an age-old argument that we are still dealing with today. And the Waco siege convinced McVeigh that it was time to start taking action. And his buddy Terry Nichols taught him how to make bombs out of readily available materials at his like family farm. I'm unsure how Terry Nichols knew how to make bombs to begin with. Um, They were both in the army together. So I don't know if that was a skill that he had picked up there or it was just something that he knew. And then in 1994, the U.S. government imposed new firearms restrictions that had McVeigh starting to plan the attack on the Alfred P. Mira Federal Building in September, or by September of 1994. So over the next six months, McVeigh and Nichols planned the bombing and acquired the materials through theft and lawful purchase, which is kind of fun. And they used several tons of ammonium nitrate fertilizer combined with fuel oil to make the bomb. McVeigh then decided on the date of April 19th, 1995 to bomb the federal building because that was a two-year anniversary of the Waco disaster, which he was very passionate about. And then on April 16th, 1995, McVeigh and Nichols drove to Oklahoma to stash a getaway car. Two days later, Nichols helped load the rental van with over 5,000 pounds of explosives that they had assembled in a storage unit in Kansas. I don't know how many pounds of explosives are, like, it's like a regular amount, but, um, like, 5,000 pounds seems like way too much. Like, that's so much explosives. I feel like that's, like, more than you would ever need ever to do anything explosive-wise. 
Like five tons of explosive. That's insane. And they were just like hanging around with that. Yeah, they just like assembled it in a storage unit in Kansas and they were just like, yep, this is an acceptable amount. What if like (laughs) in a storage unit? They were just hmm, with. Okay. I'm like, what if you're lighting up a cigarette? Something goes wrong. Right. Not ending well. Yeah, okay. I feel like you'd have to be like very careful, um, especially because you're like putting it all together the day before. But whatever. Yeah. And so Nichols didn't want to help on the day of the actual explosion. So on the 19th of April, he was at home with his family in Carrington, Kansas, and he spent the next couple days spreading the leftover fertilizer in his yard to get rid of the evidence. So the fact that they had leftover fertilizer. After 5,000 pounds of explosives is insane. And then around 9 a.m., April 19th, 1995, McVeigh parked the van in front of the building and lit a timed fuse. At 9.02 a.m., it exploded. So he just kind of lit it and then booked it as fast and as far as he could in those two minutes. Um, Over... Or around 168 people were killed and several hundred more were injured because 300 buildings within the vicinity were um, affected. An hour later, McVeigh was pulled over in his getaway car for a license plate violation. And from what I could find, he just didn't have a license plate on this vehicle. So I don't know why you would do that. McVeigh was then arrested after the officer discovered he was illegally carrying a concealed handgun. And while he was in custody, he was identified as the primary suspect in the bombing. Investigators had found traces of the chemicals used on his clothes and a business card that McVeigh had written on the back, quote, TNT at $5 a stick, need more, end quote. Why you would carry that on your person, I don't know. Love that. (laughs) Five bucks a stick. What more could you want? Exactly. So they then learned about his extremist ideologies and anger over the events that happened at Waco two years prior. Uh, Terry Nichols turned himself in to authorities on April 21st as a material witness. And two hours into his questioning, a warrant was issued for Nichols' arrest, but he was questioned for more than seven hours before he was actually arrested for his connection with the bombing. So he was questioned for nine hours and then was arrested. And his house was searched and investigators found blasting caps, guns, and a receipt for an insane amount of ammonium nitrate. Again, why you would keep that. So on August 10th, 1995, McVeigh and Nichols were indicted on 11 federal counts, including conspiracy to use a weapon of mass destruction, use of a weapon of mass destruction, destruction by explosives, and eight counts of first-degree murder. So these eight counts are for the deaths of the federal officers in the building. They couldn't charge for the other 161 deaths within the federal court because they fell, those deaths fell under the state of Oklahoma. So they'd have to do, wait until this trial finished and then have a separate trial and charges for those um, 168 deaths, which I think I don't fully understand, but that's how it went. So in October of 1995, the prosecution announced that they will be seeking the death penalty. McVeigh's trial didn't begin until April 1997, 
And then on June 2nd, 1997, McVeigh was found guilty on all 11 counts. 11 days later, the jury sentenced McVeigh to death. So his trial was quite short once it actually started. And then in a little bit here, I'll tell you about the actual evidence that they had for this trial, which is shocking that it was so short. And so three months later, Terry Nichols was also found guilty of conspiracy and eight counts of involuntary manslaughter. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. And the only reason he was spared the death penalty was because the jury was deadlocked. Um, So they couldn't give the death penalty if the jury couldn't all agree. And he was actually held in the same prison that held the Unabomber. And I would be really interested to see if they ever had any conversations or, like, ever met each other, because I feel like their conversations would be very interesting. And so McVeigh's execution was delayed pending an appeal, but um, the appeal was denied in 1999. And apparently he had maintained an upbeat attitude up to his execution and said that even after his execution, the score would still be, quote, 168 to 1, end quote. And so he was still the winner, which is disgusting and heartbreaking to read and hear. And he said that his only regret was not leveling the building completely, which, again, absolutely insane, And um, he also claimed that the bombing was revenge for what the U.S. government did at Waco and Ruby Ridge. And he knew that he was probably going to be caught and executed. And so he referred to the bombing as state-assisted suicide, which bonkers to have that level of, like, forethought and just, like, acceptance of the consequences of your actions and be willing to die for that cause is just... um, rather insane. And so on June 11th, 2001 at 7:14 a.m., Timothy McVeigh was executed by lethal injection in the United States Federal Penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana. He did not have any last words, but his last statement was William Ernest Henley's poem Invictus, which I'll read in a second. And his last meal, do you guys want to guess what his last meal was if you haven't read the slide? Chicken fingers and fries. Mm-mm. I don't know. It was two pints of mint chocolate chip ice cream. What the? What? <laughs> right. <laughs> what? As his last meal. Uh-huh. Like not even like that after his last meal for a dessert. Like mm. that was his. That, that was, was his the meal. last meal. Was he lactose intolerant? Like was this his way of trying to go before the courts took him? <laughs> I don't think so. Like shitting himself with mint chip ice cream. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm like mint chocolate chip ice cream is delicious, but it's definitely not like last meal delicious. No, but not two pints of it either. Like that's so like, I don't even, I can't even imagine eating that much. Was it like the, I mean, I don't know if all mint chip ice cream is like this, but is it with like the lime green bright mint chip ice cream? Like the Chapman's I so. or I don't know what kind of mint chip exists out there, but oh my yeah, gosh. I would imagine that that's uh yeah. Mm, so mm, mm, mm. yeah, food for thought. <laughs> so McVeigh was the first federal prisoner to be executed since 1963, and his remains were cremated and given to his lawyer, who spread them in an undisclosed location. 
And apparently he had wanted to donate his organs, but he was denied due to prison regulations, which that really surprises me. I would have thought prisons, like as long as their bodies were healthy, would be more open and arguably like, I feel like almost they would make their prisoners do it. Right. Like, you know what I mean? Because I mean, they use them for modern day slavery. Why wouldn't they go so far as to do that? I'm not promoting it. I'm just, (laughs) I feel (laughs) like they've done worse things. (laughs) Well, it didn't make sense to me either. I feel like I wouldn't want the organ of a killer, though. I mean, I guess you don't know the organ you're getting and who it belonged to. But like, yeah, that sense of like in the system, I could be getting the heart or liver of someone that killed hundreds of people yeah so i think that's probably the reason is like no one's going to want that even though you shouldn't know your donor but i also wonder if there's anything to do with like the legal injection like if they oh like if they didn't even consider that yeah that's yeah i feel like that's a very real possibility because it would go through the bloodstream would it not mm -hmm. you would for sure what is it they inject potassium and something else in couldn't tell and then, you but that would make the most sense i could see that yeah that's the only that's the only reason i can think of but um if any of our listeners know we would love to be educated on that yes please um okay so the poem that was his last kind of statement goes out of the night that covers me black as the pit from pole to pole i thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul in the fell clutch of circumstance i have not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgeoning of chance my head is bloody but unbowed beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It's a pretty nice poem, but Mm -hmm. now no one will ever be able to look at it the same thanks to this guy. Yeah, because it's kind of like, F you government, you can't control me. I stand behind my, like, I will never bow before any man kind of thing, right? That was my interpretation, but yeah. I was like, all right, way to just middle fingers to the government, I guess. And so Terry Nichols, um, he lost a number of appeals. And then in 2004, he went to trial for the state charges, which included the 161 deaths. So he was actually charged and tried for the 161 deaths of the remaining people who were killed uh, from the bombing. And the jury convicted him on all charges, including conspiracy and arson charges, And they couldn't agree on giving him the death penalty. So again, um, life without parole. And then in 2004, yeah, he was, he had received 161 consecutive death sentences without the possibility of parole for the remaining people who were killed. I can't understand why they would, they wouldn't wait to also prosecute McVeigh at the same time as Nichols, like instead of just doing the federal trial, then killing him right away. Why shouldn't he rot in prison for a few years, then be Mm -hmm. convicted of 161 people's deaths, and then get the death penalty? Like, what would the difference in a few years have been? Exactly, because it's not like he's going to somehow get out. 
and the family of the victims who had passed away from the bombing would probably feel a little bit more closure knowing that he was charged with the deaths of their family members, right? But I don't understand. And so the trial only took like um, two or three months, two months, which is bonkers because the FBI investigation had conducted more than 28,000 interviews. They had followed more than 43,000 investigative leads. They had collected more than three tons of evidence with almost a billion pieces of information. They had searched more than 13.2 million hotel registration records, reviewed more than 3.1 million truck rental records, and searched more than 682,000 airline reservation records trying to, like, solve this investigation. Which is bonkers to me that it was solved within two days after they had conducted, like, all of these interviews and stuff. Because I, like, you'd have to have every single FBI officer on the ground kind of thing, like, working this case. That's what I was wondering. Like, how how did they find him in two days, yet they had 28,000 interviews? Like, right. That must have been a big team of investigators. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so, that is all I have about the Oklahoma City bombing. Um it was really, really weird to to research and read about um, what kind of drove Timothy McVeigh to actually doing this. Mm-hmm. But I have many questions for both the FBI and McVeigh that will never get answered. <laughs> but <laughs> I have them nonetheless. <laughs> manifest. We'll put them out in the air and then manifest exactly. and then one day we'll know. Maybe we could ask Terry Nichols because I'm pretty sure he's still alive. Now that would be fun. Right. A little side project right to them. Mm-hmm. Um, side note, unrelated, related. Remember when we were working with Stinson with that case in Nova Scotia, the murder case, and we were talking about like writing to him in jail? Do you guys oh, yeah. remember that? Mm-hmm. We should not write to him, but that would be like, <laughs> <laughs> what the forensics? <laughs> like, to yeah. this Get a hold of them, ask our questions. We we could do like a little like extra where we read stories from prison inmates. Oh my gosh. Get their side of things. Probably Mm -hmm. not at all what anyone wants to hear. Like, yeah, I don't know if that's enabling, but (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, you know what I mean. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Because what's the website? What is it like inmateconnect.com or something? Yeah. Like it's literally like a dating app for inmates, but it gives you all of their like content. Pen pal info, basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like what jail they're at, what they're in for, how old they are, like how long they have left until parole. (laughs) Okay. Well, listeners, let us know if you want us to be pen pals with some prison inmates and we can start a little extra maybe we won't start with like the murderers to begin with we'll no. start light with like the we can see lesser if we can find the chargers like, falsely confused or um falsely would it convicted. say falsely convicted though <laughs> no but maybe we can find someone that we think has been falsely convicted <laughs> do our own research this is yeah okay food for thought we'll keep this mm-hmm. uh we'll keep thinking about this um <laughs> 
Well, thank you for sharing that. I definitely did not know any of that going into um, that educational spiel mm-hmm. and to learn more because I also don't know much about domestic terrorism aside from <laughs> what we see on criminal minds. Um, I w- would like to pass the, the uh, mic off to Rebecca to tell us a little bit more. Thank you, Nicole. And thank you, Journey, for telling us all about that because uh, there are definitely some points that where I can see the Oklahoma City bomber fitting into the typologies I'm going to talk about. So so just to start off, although there are um, technically there's three broad types of terrorism, um, but I've only really heard of the two and it seems like these two are the most commonly spoken about. So even though there is international and domestic terrorism, we're just going to be speaking only about domestic today as both of these topics on their own are very big and complex with very different statistics. Um, but if anyone's interested in a general terrorism topic in the future, then I'm sure we could look into doing that as well. So um, countries and their respective governments often have kind of varying definitions of terrorism, um, just based on how they interpret their own laws and crimes and stuff like that. But according to the FBI, domestic terrorism is violent criminal acts that are committed by an individual or a group to promote their ideological goals, which could be motivated by various influences, including political, religious, social, racial or environmental. And then according to Canada's criminal code, terrorism is defined as an act committed, uh, quote, in whole or in part for a political, religious or ideological purpose, objective or cause with the intention of intimidating the public. And then with regard to its security, including its economic security or compelling a person, a government or a domestic or international organization to do or refrain from doing an act. So Basically, according to the U.S. and Canadian governments, terrorism is an act, uh, a violent act committed by someone with a specific ideology. And they commit these violent acts because they want to basically strike fear and force change on the government by making people so afraid of their ideologies that they feel like they need to submit to it, basically. And while both international and domestic terrorism can be defined in very similar ways, it's important to note the biggest difference in them, uh, which also makes them different. And this is that domestic terrorism applies to those who commit terrorist acts against their own country and are not associated with foreign terrorist organizations. Um, so, for example, ISIS would be considered a foreign terrorist organization. And if someone committed a terrorist act on behalf of ISIS in the United States, it would probably be considered international terrorism because of their associations. So a further definition of terrorism, because there's never enough definitions by different entities, uh, is by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. And they state that the crime must appear to be intended to intimidate or coerce a civilian population to influence policy of a government by intimidation or coercion or to affect the conduct of a government by mass destruction, assassination or kidnapping. So. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security basically just goes further into um, the motives of what makes something, say, a terrorist crime versus a hate crime or any other type. 
And it seems like within the past couple of decades, talk about terror, domestic terrorism has increased um, sort of around the same way as the discussion surrounding gun violence in the United States has increased. And despite this, many governments, Canada and the United States included, don't actually have laws that specifically target domestic terrorism. And it's only within the past few years that governments are actually attempting to make government reform to um, target these more directly. So instead of being charged with terrorism, domestic terrorists in the states and Canada up to present day have often been charged with other offenses related to their crimes, such as murder or unlawful gun ownership. And as we saw with the Oklahoma City bomber, he was charged with the murders of 11 federal employees, but nowhere in the sentencing or in the report does it mention that he was a terrorist of any kind. So this makes it tricky to definitively define a criminal as a domestic terrorist, um, just because we don't have an exact legal definition of what constitutes domestic terrorism. Um, and because the definition, sorry, the definition is still relatively general, um, Depending on who interprets the crime that's happening at hand, it could be be perceived differently. So, for example, there's a lot of school shootings right now in the United States that some people state are terrorist crimes and some people don't. I personally don't understand how any school shooting would not be a terrorist crime. Um, but yeah, basically, there's there's different violent crimes that depending on your own opinion on the ideology they're following, you may or may not consider something terrorist that someone else might. So as mentioned earlier, there are various ideological reasons that a domestic terrorism or sorry, a domestic terrorist may want to commit a terrorist act and they can act either alone or as part of an organization, which I'm going to get into a little bit deeper uh, with the typologies so in November of 2020, in an attempt to further understand domestic terrorism, the FBI and DHS, so Department of Homeland Security, um, began working on standardized definitions and methodologies relating to domestic terrorism. And through this process, they've identified a set of five, sorry, five broad categories that domestic terrorists could fall under, each of which are defined by their ideological motivation for the crime. So I'm just going to read like a really brief um, description of each of the groups of terrorists that they had determined. But all of these is with the preface that they are committing violent acts as a result of the definition provided. Um, so the first group was racially or ethnically motivated violent extremism, and they hold ideological agendas that derive from biases related to race or ethnicity in which the actor or perpetrator uses political and religious justification to support their objectives and criminal activity. And then there's anti-government or anti-authority violent extremism, which I would argue the Oklahoma bombing uh, bomber falls under. And this is ideological agendas derived from anti-government and or anti-authority sentiments, uh, which include opposition to perceived economic, social or racial hierarchies, perceived government overreach, negligence or illegitimacy. 
The third one is animal rights and environmental violent extremism. And this one is ideological agendas from those seeking to end or mitigate perceived cruelty, harm or exploitation of animals and or the perceived exploitation or destruction of natural resources in the environment. Um, the fourth one, and I apologize in advance that there are a couple words that are not going to sound like words anymore at the end of this episode because they're very frequent. <laughs> but the fourth one was abortion-related violent extremism. And this one is the ideological agendas relating to abortion, including individuals who advocate for violence, either in support of either pro-life or pro-choice beliefs. So in recent years, there has been a couple um, attacks on, for example, Planned Parenthood uh, buildings in the United States. So those people would be considered abortion-related violent extremists for the pro-life movement. And then finally, uh, their final typology of domestic terrorists is pretty much a catch-all. Actually, that's exactly what it is. Um, it is all other domestic terrorism threats. And this is the ideology ideological agendas, which are not defined under the previous four categories. And they had stated that these can include uh, agendas flowing from personal grievances and beliefs, uh, such as biases relating to religion, gender, and sexual orientation. Um, when this article was written and when these were created, um, I think it was around 2020. Um, and I think e with how fast the political climate is moving. I think even today they would have an additional one just because mm -hmm. if you have been on Twitter in the past year, you would see a lot of um, not great things towards the LGBTQ community. And I would say that we are getting close to having to add a fifth category. Um, but as of the time this was written, um, the terrorist attacks towards the LGBT community would fall under all other domestic terrorism threats. So with the abortion-related um, violent extremism, what differentiates that from, like, the racially or ethnically motivated violent extremism? Because they're using, like, religious justifications also in abortion ones. I think the difference between those is that the people um, that fall into racially or ethnically motivated extremism, um, at least to my own understanding, um, these are the people that would fall more so under like the KKK, for example, like they're okay. using the religion to justify um, hatred towards people of color. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas the abortion related stuff Yes, that could be related to their religion, but it could also be related to a number of other things that aren't race related. Um, okay. Yeah, they didn't. I was surprised for an FBI document how little they actually provided on each of these. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, basically racially or ethically motivated um, with regards to religious justification falls only under if they are discriminating or being violent towards other races just because they say, oh, the Bible says be mean to these people. Um, even though I know that's not true, but that's how they'll justify <laughs> it. Um, yep. And abortion related could be related to religion, but it's not racially motivated. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess I just missed that it was like specifically like racial and ethnic. And then I just focused on like the religious part of it 
That's fair. The definitions do get pretty repetitive, so it's understandable how uh, how they can kind of just muddle together. <laughs> yeah. I think with, like, the abortion ones, too, there's... I mean, it's more broad in a sense compared to the racial and ethnic in that, like, people who see it in other realms that aren't religiously motivated could like are still going to fall under that. You know what I mean? Like if someone goes to commit heinous things on a Planned Parenthood, they very well could just be like, well, I love all lives. Like I wouldn't see really that as like a racial motivation or like a religious, like they, I feel like there's a lot of things that could impact how someone could see, be biased towards something like that. If that makes sense. Absolutely. Or it could be something like um, in one of the FBI documents I was reading or CSIS documents, it actually mentioned uh, that the incel movement could <laughs> some of the more serious people mm, of yeah. this movement could fall under one of these domestic terrorist categories, such as Alec Manassian, who ran the van into a group of people yeah. on Young Street. He was motivated by that movement. Um, I can't remember the name of the other guy right now, but. He's was also same thing. He was a mass shooter and he was very big in this movement to the point where a lot of people in the incel community began hailing him as a hero for what he did to the victims. Um, so it could even in terms of the abortion related be something, unfortunately, as simple as them just really hating women, not wanting them to have rights. So they're going to take it out on everyone in this building, which is probably going to be majority women. But moving on from that, um, Canada's security and government entities don't have such a detailed list of domestic terrorist categories as this. Like they don't break it down into like specific types of hate crime, I suppose you could say. Um, however, there has been research conducted by the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, or CSIS, regarding the frequency of domestic terrorism in which they've came up with categories as well that they deemed um, right-wing, left-wing, and religious terrorism, which I will preface has nothing to do with the political viewpoints of people in government. They just chose right-wing and left-wing based on the types of ideas, I guess. I'll get into that in a second. Um, but in the study that was published by CSIS, by the Center for Strategic and International Studies in 2020, they analyzed data from between 1994 and 2020 of domestic terror attacks in the United States. Not positive why CSIS is doing studies for the United States, but that's beside the point. Um, did research 1994 and 2020 of domestic terror attacks in the United States to identify the common themes or ideologies behind the attacks, as well as the types of weapons or violence involved. So CSIS divided the data into four categories of which they stated, like I said before, despite the names, have no correspondence with the political parties in the United States. These t terms are simply used to generalize between types of terrorism. So the four categories are right-wing terrorism, uh, which includes racial or ethnic supremacy, opposition to government authority, anger at women, e.g. the incel movement, um, and outrage against certain policies such as abortion. 
left-wing terrorism uh, includes those terrorists that oppose capitalism, imperialism, and colonialism, advocate black nationalism, pursue environmental or animal rights issues, espouse pro-communist or pro-socialist beliefs, or support a decentralized social and political system such as anarchism. The third one was religious terrorism, which was violence in support of a faith-based belief system such as Islam, Judaism, Christianity, and Hinduism. And then finally was the least common to the point where they didn't even really give statistics on this group was ethno-nationalist terrorism. Um, And this is in support of ethnic or nationalist goals, which often include struggles of self-determination and separation along ethnic or national lines. I didn't completely understand that one. I'm going to be honest. Um, But at the same time, it did amount for a very small amount of the overall domestic terrorism between these two decades. So I'm just going to get a little bit into the statistics of the prior three. Would the ethno-nationalist terrorism be um, like someone in the United States who identifies strongly with the views of ISIS then commits domestic terrorist acts um, kind of to prove their support of ISIS? I think so. Like, that's kind I, of that's, what would make sense to me. Yeah, that's the only way that I really understood it as well. I think that's a safe bet. I'm just, mm-hmm. I don't want to say for sure that that's what it was, only because the sources I read talking about how if they're associated with a foreign terrorist entity, then it's not domestic terrorism. But what if they were born and raised in the U.S. and still doing it on behalf? Like, I think there's a lot of gray lines that we're all trying to figure out still. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Yeah. So, yes. I don't know if this is going to help at all because I'm still a little confused about it. But just a quick, what is ethno-nationalism? It says that it's... um, Some types of ethnic nationalism are firmly rooted in the idea of ethnicity as an inherited characteristic. So, for example, black nationalism or white nationalism, often ethnic nationalism, also manifests, nope, often manifests in the assimilation of minority ethnic groups into the dominant group. For example, with the Italianization. Didn't know that was a thing. But yeah, I guess that would be the sense of like, a minor ethnic group into dominant groups. So, like, I can see where you're kind of coming from, Journey, maybe. So, with that definition, then, would it be, like, when you live, like, the argument of, like, um, like different religions within Canada? Like, there's a certain, I think it's Islamic religion where they have to, they have a religious knife that they want to wear, but like defense weapons aren't allowed in Canada. And so it's hard to find the line between like, is that knife a defense weapon or a religious thing? And so saying no to them carrying that would be a form of like ethno-nationalist, ethno-nationalism kind of thing because you were kind of like assimilating them into like Canadian culture, whatever that might be. Just for for a little mm-hmm. knowledge, the ones who carry around the um, I forget what it's called, but it has a specific name. Um, but it's Sikhism that that okay. carries the 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 sheath. <laughs> okay, I wasn't sure. I couldn't remember what their actual name was, and I didn't want to offend anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was kind of my. It's like... called a. I also just looked it up. I'm sorry. It's called a kirpan. That's what it's called. Okay. It's the. Uh, it's yeah. It's just a ceremonial 
knife worn by them, basically. Right. Some ethno-nationalism examples, I guess, to paint idea of like groupings. It says in Western Europe, there's Irish, Germans, Danish, Finns. In Eastern Europe, Poles, Czechs, Slovaks, Hungarians. I don't know if this helps. In Asia, Turks, Georgians, Armenians, Japanese, Chinese, Vietnamese, Thai, Burmese. So like, I guess just group, like groupings. That just sounds like, yeah, like an ethnic grouping. Please, and listeners, then you kind of like us. commit terrorism <laughs> based on your heritage. So, like, would then like colonialism, or is that but a separate? I feel like it took up such a small percentage, though, that I feel like colonialism that would be large. That would you would see that, yeah, on the statistics, right? Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, as of right now, I'm just not sure the difference between. And this like, stuff coming up online is very muddy between, like, what ethno-nationalist terrorism is with what, like, other types of terrorism is, too. Like, it's a I very wonder, fluid um, result. Yeah, I wonder if, like, white supremacy, in terms of CSIS's definitions, if white supremacy would fall under ethno-nationalism, but under the FBI's definitions, if it would fall under racially or ethnically motivated because, mm-hmm. like, all of them overlap in some way. There's just, like, different categories for them. So yeah. I'm... Yeah, I guess maybe the KKK would be ethno-nationalist. Listeners, educate well, us. <laughs> I don't know if the KKK would be, because aren't they religiously based? That's a great question. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Because I guess they Maybe are white we'll supremacists. Do a KKK episode would that <gasps> be extreme? We should do that. That would be very interesting. I think that it would, would be, be cool. really interesting. There is a lot with that. It would be really interesting to do that and then discuss why they're not considered a terrorist group yet. Ooh. Because In, technically, I believe they are. I am actually going to get into not not the KKK in particular, but I'm going to get into um, kind of why the KKK can still exist in groups like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it has very much to do with their First Amendment rights. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, we'll let you continue, but yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I'll kind of skip this point that I had here because we just spoke about it. Um, but as you can see, there's a lot of overlap between CSIS's categories and the FBI DHS's categories. Um, and it's going to be the same thing. Like if you look, I'm, I'm sure Interpol probably has categories for it or the UK has categories. Like because we don't standardize across the globe, we're going to have a lot of overlap when, in kind of how everybody sees domestic terrorism. Um but yeah, just going into statistics and data a little bit from the CSIS report I was talking about. Um, so as I said, even though it's made by CSIS, it's on data in the United States between 1994 and 2020. Um, so across right and left wing uh, terrorism acts, sorry, left and right wing and religious terrorism acts between 1994 and 2020, it was found that firearms were the most frequently used weapon during lethal attacks, 
However, across all attacks, fatal and non-fatal, explosives and incendiaries were the most often used weapon. So this would be what the Oklahoma City bomber used was a bomb. Um, but then incendiaries are things that can cause a fire explosion. So the most common example I saw of an incendiary was like a Molotov cocktail. Um, okay, I was going to ask. I was like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's something that I I'm not sure if I could say a grenade is an incendiary, but basically it's something that like you can throw or put down and it starts something else. <laughs> what if That's my understanding. Be considered an incendiary if you use it in like a malicious context. I feel like probably. I don't Since see why not. Since 4th of July was this week, I feel like. Maybe. Yeah, I don't see why not. Okay. <laughs> it that could was cause question. fire. Yeah, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, anyway. But yeah, further, it was found that between the study review period, there were 411 right-wing terrorist attacks, 219 left-wing terrorist attacks, and the amount of religious attacks was unclear due to a lot of the data um, sorry, due to a lack of data for about two or three years during the review period, and I don't know where the lack came from. Um, however, they did find that the most frequently targeted group across all terrorist groups um, were government, military, and police facilities and personnel, which made up um, 43% of all religious attacks between 1994 and 2020. And in terms um, of fatal attacks... Oh. Sorry to interrupt, but don't you think that if you were constantly being um, like the target of a terrorist attack, wouldn't you kind of maybe like take a second and think, oh... What am I doing that's causing... Yeah. Like, not to <laughs> side with the terrorists, but, like, I think I would maybe do some, like, self-reflection. They've got maybe. other things that are more important, like having multiple shows with cops in it that they have to provide insight on. You know? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. can't that's be bothered with protection on terrorism. <laughs> No. Yeah, I don't know. Just a question. One thing That's I found interesting, too, with what you said, like, that, if I call it that right, that the religious terrorism targets police days, like, police and whatnot, yeah. I'm shocked that they're not, like, I don't know, my mind would go to, like, targeting other religious movement or like other religious movements or buildings or like something that doesn't align with their religious belief. Like I would think other things would fall into that before law enforcement, you know, definitely. Well, it's, yeah. It's I very interesting it, to see that that's the main place places. Absolutely. And they did like, it was an average of 43% that um, religious terrorist attacks happen between government, military and police. Um, but then there is still almost 60% that can obviously kind of account for like attacks on other religious groups and women's centers and schools and all of these things. I, in the links I have the, uh, or in the sources, I have links to all of the reports that I read and they have very nice, beautiful, organized, colorful charts that show you all of the information that I'm sharing now in more detail. So definitely check those out. Um, but yeah, 
big takeaway from this is that terrorists are not a fan of government, military, and police. <laughs> um, so then just some more statistics in terms of fatal attacks. So this only accompanies terrorist attacks that ended in casualties, at least one or more casualties. Um, they found that in right-wing attacks, um, and just going back really quick, remember right and left-wing are not talking about the political spectrum. We're talking about a broad group of ideologies. Okay, so uh, firearms were responsible for 73% of all fatal right-wing attacks. They were responsible for 100% of all fatal left-wing attacks and 62% of all fatal religious attacks. So long story short there is guns and terrorists do not mix well. That's a fair, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. fair, uh, yeah. I, I can't believe I back that up they're, that. yeah, I can't believe that they're like 100% of left-wing attacks yeah. that were I fatal. I know, I'm, again, not supporting terrorists in the slightest, but you'd think they'd be better at making bombs. Yeah, right? yeah. But like, why? You I'm very glad they're not. You don't have to think too hard to use a gun, though, right? Like, and they're so widely accessible in the United States, too. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Like, it's it's frightening. Well, like you were saying, and I know um, McVeigh, the city Oklahoma City bombing was before 9/11, so this was before the time that there's like metal detectors in every American school and stuff like that. But still, the fact that he felt comfortable enough underage mm-hmm. to just go to school with a gun right yeah like and if no one if anyone about that yeah like if anyone under 18 in canada was caught with a gun like they're whoever's legally responsible for them would be jailed yeah, yeah. i would hope at least yeah especially like without a gun license specifically yeah. in canada like if you have a gun without a gun license like see you later that's yeah. insane yeah, yeah. That, that statistic is crazy. It is. I didn't expect it to be that high. When I was researching, I did genuinely believe that explosives would account for most of the issues. But I guess that's just me stereotyping terrorist attacks, which is not good on my part. But I'm sure I'm not the only one. <laughs> and now I know more. That's why we learn. Um, yeah, but moving on from the typologies and a little bit of scary statistics, what can be done or is being done to prevent domestic terrorism, or at least to prosecute those who have already committed these acts? So in terms of preventing domestic terrorism, surprisingly, it might be more difficult to do um, than preventing international terrorism, at least in the United States. Um I was a little surprised when I read this because I assumed if it was domestic, it'd be easier just because it's happening on your own soil. However, um, for example, in the United States, the federal government has many resources at their disposal that they can use to combat international terrorism, um, almost all of which falls under the Patriot Act, which, if you remember last episode, is also the act in which Snowden was charged for espionage under. Um But under the Patriot Act, the government has the authority to conduct surveillance on suspected terrorists, obtain financial records, and conduct undercover sting operations, 
all if the person is suspected of being involved in international terrorism, which ultimately can help prevent future attacks if they're successful. However, many of these international terrorism operations, which are conducted under the Patriot Act, Patriot Act are done based on ideologies that the suspects hold and express, even if they haven't outright committed a crime yet. So in the if a citizen of the United States on United States soil spouted ideologies that were seen as hateful or radical, but hasn't acted on them yet, they're largely protected under the First Amendment, which protects free speech. And thus, the government can't conduct the same sort of surveillance or operations as if they were international. And it's because their citizens, until they commit a crime, are, as I just said, I suppose, um, it doesn't matter how hateful their speech is. If they are not directly threatening someone or actively committing a crime, yes, they are protected from uh, the government for their free speech, but they're not protected from consequences, but they are from the government, if that makes sense. There's a little bit of a tangent there. Um, yes, basically, private companies can kind of give you consequences if they, you say something they don't like, but the government, if you say something they don't like, they can't do anything until you commit a crime, which I guess is fair and it's protected, but there needs to be something more done for people who are actively spreading these ideologies and acting on them because we're acting on them too late at that point. Well, and I feel like a lot of people can be spreading these ideologies and then other people will be reading them and then acting on them. So I feel like the person who acted on that ideology needs to be punished, but also the person who started like spreading that misinformation and ideology should also have some sort of like disciplinary action. I, I agree. And I hope change comes to that, but just like all of the fights and civil unrest happening with, um, uh, sorry, I blanked on the Second Amendment and reforming gun laws. I think there would arguably ev be an even bigger uproar trying to implement something on the First Amendment to prevent domestic terrorism. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, but um, in a statement that was given by Brad Weijman, Weijman, I apologize if I'm saying that wrong. Um, he is or was, I'm not positive if he's still active, the Deputy Assistant Attorney General for the U.S. Department of Justice. Uh, he gave a statement at a hearing titled Confronting the Rise of Domestic Terrorism in the Homeland in 2019 in front of the um, uh, Department of Homeland Security. And in this, he said, quote, in fighting domestic terrorism, we respect the constitutional rights of freedom of speech, association and assembly of all Americans. The FBI opens cases on suspected criminal violations, not ideologies. The FBI may not investigate solely on the basis of First Amendment protected activity, unquote. So I'd say in that sentence alone is the reason that we're so much better at preventing international than domestic terrorism. But with that being said, um, it is, I'm not saying it's only that quote. Uh, it's everything that this quote comes from is essentially the reason that groups such as the KKK are still allowed to operate today. It's because people can openly be members of the KKK. For an example, there are 
plenty of other groups that are like this, that are like pseudo terrorist, basically in the eyes of the states. Um, but people can openly be members of it and spew hateful ideology. But unless the government has a reasonable suspicion that a mem- member is planning on or has already committed a crime, they legally just can't do anything about the activity behavior. And they essentially have to let them continue spreading these harmful ideas because it's technically protected, even though it is it is harming millions of people. Is there no country amendment about like hate speech? I don't know enough about the first amendment to speak on that. I know hate speech is a crime, mm-hmm. at least in Canada, which is what makes like is, which is what confuses me so much about this specifically. Mm-hmm. Cause um, I understand like the importance of freedom of speech, but I also think that there should be a line drawn of what, becomes hate speech i think that line is very fuzzy like i do believe there is a line obviously like there has to be i would hope Mm -hmm. but i think the circumstances surrounding what is and what isn't very fine line unfortunately really briefly i looked up heat or hate speech usa and um just from this wikipedia page first sentence i'm just going i'll I suppose I'll cite the Wikipedia page because <laughs> I'm going to directly quote it right now. Um, but it answers our question. It says, quote, hate speech in the United States cannot be directly regulated by the government due to the fundamental right to freedom of speech protected by the Constitution. While hate speech is not a legal term in the United States, the U.S. Supreme Court has repeatedly ruled that most of what would qualify as hate speech in other Western countries is legally protected speech under the First Amendment. Unquote. All right. Well, that does answer so, our questions. That yeah. So yeah, that's honestly <laughs> really gross. <laughs> I know. I have so many feelings. <sighs> yeah. If they didn't protect hate speech, maybe they could do more about domestic terrorism. What? Well, from your <laughs> mouth for to God's ears. So. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um. Yeah. But moving on from that, because. I suppose I should stop bad-mouthing their government. Um, <laughs> Opening up a new can of worms for us to <laughs> respond hey, to later. at least we can't get charged with hate speech. It's just freedom of speech. They can't get yeah. us. And That's very Canada. true. Fuck the That's states. very true. The Canadian government can get us, but we're safe from oh. the states. Yeah. <laughs> they have other things to worry about. They're not going to come after the three of us. Exactly. Oh, very true. But, um... Yeah, just speaking over all of that and kind of the lack of, I guess, what they're doing to prevent domestic terrorism, it becomes very clear that change is needed uh, in how we currently handle domestic terrorism. Um, And it's becoming more evident with each passing year. Um, So in another study that was conducted by CSIS on domestic terrorism in the United States between 1994 and 2021, um, so it might actually be the same report, just or same data set written in a different report. Um, all the articles blended together, but they found that out of all of their data of all the years, 2021 had the highest recorded number of domestic terrorism to date. And in 2021 alone, there were 73 domestic terror attacks and plots in the United States. Can I hypothesize why? Yes. 
because COVID and people are spending way too much time home alone, ruminating with their thoughts, seeing all this crap online about stuff. And they go, yeah, I know what I believe in. Boom. Domestic terrorism Mm -hmm. increase. COVID was actually something they did mention in the article because from 2014, domestic terrorism has been steadily increasing in the United States. But in 2020, it kind of dropped a little bit. Um, And then in 2021, skyrocketed again. So they suspect that COVID-19, basically because everyone was stuck indoors, no one could actually go out and commit these crimes. But now that it's over, everything is just picked up and we're still on the increase we've been seeing since mid-2010s. True. I guess if you're stuck inside, you can't do much. But once those restrictions lift, then... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, Did the articles say why they chose 1994 as the starting year? Not that I found, but I suspect it has something to do with how data was collected. Um, Because one of the things they did mention in this report um, were ways that they could possibly, like, reform the government and reform on improving basically how they respond. And they did say that there needs to be an effort to have more detailed data analysis and data collection. Mm -hmm. Um, Same with, as I said, for some reason, I think it was between 1996 and 98, there was no data for religious terrorism in the United States, which is why they couldn't give like a definitive how many fatal attacks and how many non-fatal. Right. But yeah, it's just weird. There was missing data. And I think... I th- I think they just they really need to improve kind of how we're dealing with data collection. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, but of the 73 attacks that happened in 2021 in the states, there was a total of 30 casualties with an average of 31 casualties happening per year between 2014 and 2021. And just for comparison, between 1994 and 2013, so a much larger time period, there were only three years in that time span where the number of casualties resulting from domestic terrorism exceeded eight individuals. And then between 2014 and 2021, we averaged 31 per year. That's crazy. Yeah. So it's uh, definitely increasing. And then so, probably Timothy McVeigh then skews the numbers um, or is one of the three events mm-hmm. or whatever. In, cause he, yeah, he definitely would have been one of the uh, definitely would have been one of the outliers. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they don't include. Sorry to interrupt you oh, again. It's okay. It's okay. They don't include school shootings as domestic terrorism, right? That I'm not completely sure about. Um, okay. I know they don't include certain hate crimes because I was reading through it and they only included violent hate crimes, which removed a lot of hate crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in terms of whether or not they classified school shootings as domestic terrorism, I'm not positive. I'd have to go through it and okay. again and look for it, but I'll let you know if I do, okay. if I do end up figuring that out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, But also of the 73 attacks that had occurred in 2021, they found that 38 were committed by white supremacy and like-minded ideologic groups or individuals, and 31 of them were committed by anarchist or anti-fascist like-minded ideologic individuals. 
And additionally, they found that regardless of the perpetrator's ideology, so they could be right-wing, left-wing, religious, ethno-culture, or ethno-nationalist, they found that government, military, and police locations and personnel were always the most frequently targeted group. So in order to combat domestic terrorism, a lot of work and reform, as we've spoken about, is still needed. And while there is work being done, which includes the announcement made by President Joe Biden in 2021, which announced the U.S.'s first national strategy for countering domestic terrorism, many organizations and people are calling for more action to be taken on the individuals and groups who use digital platforms to spread their harmful ideologies as research has sound sorry research has found that many of the modern domestic terrorists that we've seen in recent years use the internet and social media to release propaganda fundraise for their cause recruit and communicate with new and old members of their groups, and also to organize terrorist plots against other groups of people. So while it is an issue of free speech in America that's holding back the progress on stopping domestic terrorism, something also needs to be done about the groups that are seemingly spreading these harmful ideas without legal consequence. As you guys were saying earlier, how there should be consequence not only for the perpetrator, but the person that's been spreading these lies to them. Um. And I guess we kind of saw that with Alex Jones. I know that was for defamation, but he did inadvertently cause a lot of people or at least influenced a lot of people to believe this very not good misinformation that resulted in a lot of victims' families being like terrorized by people thinking they know the truth. Well, even just like the sheer amount of misinformation being spread about Every single thing on the internet these days is, like, unbelievable. Oh, well, it's hard to know what's what's right and what's not. Mm-hmm, exactly. But um, I'm kind of wrapping up here now, but just with regards to international terrorism, there seems to be a lot more being done to stop it right now. And this is in large part due to the 9-11 terrorist attacks of New York. Um Thankfully, governments have recognized the need to up their measures on combating domestic terrorism in recent years because it has become more prevalent in recent decades. So one way in which CSIS has noted to um, improve would be, again, as we mentioned earlier, so I'm kind of just reiterating now, um, would be to implement better and more rigorous data collection and analysis, which can be used alongside terrorism countermeasures we presently have to reduce the threat of domestic terrorism. And then they also recognize the need to update counterterrorism training and resource programs to ensure that there's ample resources for understanding, detecting, deterring, and investigating acts of domestic terrorism with respect to like newer technological advancements, such as like social media, for example, and also across all levels of law enforcement instead of just federal. Um, I briefly mentioned earlier Biden's announcement about the new counterterrorism program. Uh, so the national strategy for countering domestic terrorism 
is aiding in the effort to increase these resources that CSIS is calling for, as well as they're promoting cross-agency coordination and collaboration to ensure that all of the relative information or potentially relative information is being utilized by the right people to prevent terrorism attacks. So, for example, the FBI or like a, a state police officer might have received information that could have been vital to a terrorist attack two states over, but they don't usually cooperate. So how are they going to know if this can help? So basically they're just trying to kind of synchronize all of the departments a little more in hopes that they can solve some more crimes. And I'm sure that's going to help with more than just domestic terrorism, but domestic terrorism is the main goal they have in mind right now. So then additionally, law enforcement can work with non-law enforcement agencies um, or entities such as financial institutions, um, which can identify instances of potential terrorist financing. Um, and although this is done pretty much only right now, I believe, for international terrorism, same thing as we're seeing with um, kind of editing or altering international terrorism protocols for domestic um, with the proper protocols, typologies, and research, I feel like this could be another useful tool in fighting domestic terrorism as well as international. But the bottom line is that domestic terrorism is just like international in the sense that it's a violent activity conducted by someone with an ideological motive in order to, fred- to spread fear and intimidate populations. Um with the only difference being that one of them occurs by a citizen to their own country and the other occurs by an individual to someone else's country. Um, They're basically equally as dangerous because all violent crime is violent crime. It doesn't matter what you're motivated by. If it's hate, it's all the same. Um, There's no single ideology that's responsible for domestic terrorism, and it can be perpetrated by a single person, such as the, well, I guess the Oklahoma City bomber did have a partner, Um, but a single individual, such as Quebec's Ecole Polytechnique mass shooting in 1989, who was motivated by his sheer hatred for women, Um, but they can also be orchestrated as part of a larger terrorist group such as like we described the KKK, or if we're talking international, then we could also talk like Al Qaeda and ISIS are also large terrorist groups. Um, But that's all I really have on domestic terrorism without getting too much into its overlap between international. Um, I did put a fun little website. It's not fun because it's really sad statistics. Um, I put an interesting website just on my next slide that has like an interactive uh, a bunch of interactive charts for like worldwide terrorism data if you guys have time to check it out it'll also be on our website um it's ourworldanddata.org so just look for that link and uh it'll bring you to some cool stuff but yeah that's all i've got for us today (laughs) perfect well thank you for that um i had a question that came up my brain pondered this as you were talking, Rebecca, but with all of the current events that are going on with the shit hitting the fan in the world everywhere and like the protests in France, um, have you guys heard about that, by the way? The French no, I haven't protests. heard anything about that. 
Oh, the French are going crazy right now. I think, really? I don't know the full details, but I believe a young black male was killed by police. And so, rightfully so, shit's hitting the fan. Um, yeah. But my question then was, could protesters, in a sense, could they be seen as domestic terrorisms if terrorists, if it escalates to a certain point because like the definition in itself is like a person or group committing violent criminal acts to promote ideological goals. So if they're all having the same goal to make change, but peaceful protests aren't always a thing, like if they get too violent, could that then blur the line between domestic terrorism and protest? What do you guys think? think the that's like exactly where the lines become too gray for what we currently understand yeah. um like through my research i couldn't get out of my head um and now i am kind of talking about political spectrum not left and white <laughs> terrorism um yeah. but looking at like if you think about left-wing air quotation individuals who were in support of black lives matter movements um some of those did become violent um Mm -hmm. and so people on the right-wing side many of them are calling them antifa terrorists and and Mm. all of this stuff but then if we look at on the other side um the january 6th riots that occurred Mm -hmm a lot of people are also considering those terrorist attacks, but then the group of people who support it are saying that it was a protest into the, un- the, um, you know what it was about. It was everywhere, <laughs> but yeah, basically it's, it's the same idea that the reason the States isn't really prosecuting, um, hate speech right now is because what's hate speech or like, what's a really hateful ideology to one person is not going to be seen as a hateful ideology to another person. And mm. so, yeah, like not everyone sees certain acts as terrorism the same as others would. And I, yeah. I think we really need like a standardized definition to be able mm-hmm. to decide that right now. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah, that's actually really interesting because I wouldn't consider like the the Black Lives Matter movement and the riots associated with that as domestic terrorism. But I would definitely consider like the January 6th incident as terrorism. But again, it's like whatever allies with your political beliefs that kind of shapes your judgment of what is or isn't a terrorist Mm -hmm. attack. Exactly. Which is what makes it so difficult to decide on protocols and definitions and typologies Mm -hmm. because especially too like if we look at that then it's the people who are in charge it's basically their ideologies and beliefs that are dictating what is and what is not terrorism you know what i mean like it's Mm -hmm. not a collective anyways gray area gray area but um food for thought i wanted to get your opinion on it um Well, thank you to the both of you for enlightening me and the listeners about all things Oklahoma City bombing and domestic terrorism. So thank you for that. Um, Our next episode, we're kind of going to shift gears a little bit and we're going to focus on two ongoing cases at the moment. So this is the case of Lori Vallow and then the case of Jonathan Majors. Um, So keep your eyes peeled for that episode. And... 
my fun little tidbit forensic not friday information um they've done a forensic facial reconstruction of a teenager in the seventh century um so they've got a exhibition on right now at the University of Cambridge's Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. One, that sounds like an incredible place to visit. Would love yeah, to go I think to that. Me too. I'm like, I need to add that to my list of places to go. <laughs> yeah. But then too, like their um, exhibition is called um, Beneath Our Feet, Archaeology of the Cambridge Region. So it's just everything found in that region, which is super old in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Um, But basically what happened is they found this very odd grave back in 2012, I believe it was, they found it. Um, They found the remains of about a 16-year-old girl. She was buried in a carved wooden bed. And this was unique because this was one of only about 18 ever found in the United Kingdom. Um, yeah. Um, I don't know what the bed symbolizes. Don't know what that means, but that was cool. Mm-hmm. She was wearing gold pins, fine clothing. She had a beautiful ornate cross around her neck. And this has been called the Trumpington cross by researchers just because of the location where it was found in. Um, but basically they, the reason why they did this facial reconstruction was to like, make it more of a personable experience. So they thought that museum goers, if they were to go to this museum and they could see this face of this 16-year-old 7th century English girl looking at you, then you could like resonate with it a bit more and like really kind of understand it a bit better. And the researchers were saying too, like for them, it was really neat in their perspective, because after spending so much time researching something and like devoting your research to this individual, you finally give them a face. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's so, artist, so many cool. archae- yeah, yeah, so many archaeologists don't get that opportunity. Like that's super cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this um, what was he? A forensic artist, I believe his name. I have it somewhere. Hugh Morrison. He was a forensic artist. He reconstructed this um, teenager. He did have to guess um, eye and hair color just because that's not something we can see with facial markers and all that. But he did notice that apparently one of her eyes sat lower than the other. So that was a big feature that they portrayed in this uh, reconstruction of them. Interesting. Yeah. So it's neat to see kind of like that forensic application outside of... I mean, in the same way, yeah, you're putting a face to a victim of some sort. I mean, she may not have been a victim. We don't know the circumstances yet. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I'll I'll link the uh, the article too um, because it was really neat to read about. And the cross that she was wearing is insane. Like, let me see. Yeah, if I, can I can't wait to see pictures. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's crazy. That, that kind of looks like wild. a like a Knights Templar type type cross. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, and then they also conducted isotopic analysis. Um, I don't know if we ever talked about that in any of our episodes. I feel like it may have come up once in a while. I feel like um, we've like glanced over it, but it hasn't been a topic in itself. A topic, topic. Yeah. Okay. So they also conducted those types of analyses and. 
they found that she was not actually native to England. So she came to England at about seven years old from, they believe, the Alps. Um, and they also were matches, like the isotopic analysis they conducted, matched women, another woman who is found, oh, sorry, two other women who were found also in that area who were also in beds. So I really don't know the significance of these carved beds, but I yeah. really want to learn about it. Yeah, and given it, there were so few found in the UK, like leads what, to believe like those mm-hmm. women might have all been related and of some sort of like royalty, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what the big part of this exhibition is trying to showcase is like women in history and women in these times and like their role and their everything you know what i mean just kind of bringing light to it all um but yeah they thought maybe aristocratic maybe a royal status of some sort but um just from the brief smithsonian article i read they they didn't go too too deep into who she may have been that is so cool i'm so intrigued by those beds and the cross that was on her too like that's so cool yeah. So I'm curious to see if more comes out like in the future com- um combining forensics with archaeology. Um mm-hmm. it's such an interesting discipline. Right. So interesting. That's so interesting. Yeah. And they have like bioarchaeologists or bio something or other who work with bones and it was everything was so cool. But yeah, yeah that was that's our, awesome. The little extra tidbit on top of that for this episode. Um, if you want to find out more about that, you can check us out on our website. And where else can people find this journey? All right. People can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics. Our Twitter is WT Forensics PC. We're not very active on it. <laughs> um, so I would definitely go to either our Instagram or our Facebook if you want to see what we're up to, or our website, which is whattheforensics.ca. And our email is whatthefrenzics at gmail.com. If you have any like questions, comments, concerns, any topic ideas. Um, we want to interact with you guys. <laughs> Please <laughs> talk to us. Yeah. Um, send us your suggestions. But um, yeah, give us a review wherever you listen. We like to read them from the few that we've gotten. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. Um, Definitely check out our website. I feel like we've put most of our time into our website and I'm really proud Mm -hmm. of our website and like just the content that's on it. Like everything's there from our episodes, our sources, a little bit about about us. You know, you hear our voices. You may not see our faces if you're not on socials. Um, So we're on there. And then, yeah, stuff like this, like learn about this seventh century teenage girl. You can find the article on our on our website there. So definitely Mm -hmm. give us a look there. And we're Um, trying to like keep up with some like, um, like current events of like forensics. We have that like the Unabomber died and like what's going on with Paul Bernardo and just like a bunch of other stuff just for your reading pleasure on our website as well. Yeah. Basically your one-stop shop for everything forensics. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Great way to put it, Rebecca. Um, And with that, this has been another episode of What the Forensics. We hope you enjoyed it, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye! Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just interested in forensics and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and can make mistakes. 
Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Mm-hmm.